This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. I'm delighted to have return guests to the program, Captain Dylan Hubbard of Hubbard's Marina in southwestern Florida, to talk about a really positive update concerning the Commerce Department vessel speed rule and some other trending issues, one concerning manatees being relisted uh, with greater scrutiny under the Endangered Species Act and some other Gulf of Mexico-related fishing regulations. Dylan, good to have you back on the program. Yeah, thanks for having me back. I appreciate it and uh, look forward to chatting today about all these uh, issues in the Gulf of Mexico. So our little podcast kind of spurred greater awareness. You were able to appear on Fox Business, Fox News Channel Primetime with Jesse Waters to talk about this issue. Would you say that exposure, uh, a little help from our podcast here, maybe some other related reporting, did that really help kind of make the decision and also with the marine manufacturers and others that there are many stakeholders involved, but I think you kind of being the spokesperson for opposing this Gulf of Mexico rice's whale speed rule, perhaps invited the department to rescind the vessel speed rule. And and that just took place. You informed me, I think it was the the weekend before Halloween, a few days before Halloween. So break that down for us and, and talk about what this victory looks like. And if we can really pause um, or I still have to be worried about this potentially being adopted. Yeah, I think there's still a grave concern there. Uh, I think basically the the big the big point of the the agency delaying any rulemaking based on the petition was, hey, we don't have enough information to support the rule or the petition. So I think it's not necessarily the agency saying, hey, we're not going to make a rule like this. I think it's the agency saying we're not going to make a rule like this at this time. Let us get some more research done. So that's a big concern. I think there's still a lot to watch in the Gulf of Mexico concerning the rice's whales. And I think there's, uh, I mean, it's definitely not a time where you can dismiss that as, hey, we won. Um, because the, the, the agencies, the, the associations, the organizations behind the petition aren't going to settle for losing. And uh, the agency is not going to uh, sit idly by on, uh, on that uh, ESA listed species. They're going to continue to, uh, they, they designated the critical habitat area. Now they're, they're pouring a lot of money into researching uh, the, the biomass of the species and, and the health of the population and some more information on it. And there, look at what's happening on the East coast and up and down the, the, the Atlantic, South, or, yeah. yeah, the Atlantic coast with the rice, right whale. 
Um, they've already moved forward with rulemaking, but that whale is definitely a lot different from the rice's whale. And the fact that there's a lot more population, they have a lot more research. They're a lot more further along in the process with the right whale compared to the rice's whale in the Gulf of Mexico. They don't have as much information. They don't know the population size and they really don't know. I mean, the last doc assessment said the scientists said in black and white, they don't know if the population can be recovered. So that's a lot of the question that's up in the air right now is exactly what does, where does uh, the critical habitat need to go? Uh, one concerning thing that I've seen uh, adopted was uh, they were they were petitioning this, this uh, speed limit zone. Uh, the oil and gas industry actually voluntarily accepted the speed limit in this zone. Uh, I don't know if that was really well covered. I, I didn't see it really publicized anywhere. First time hearing of it. That's what I've heard from some inside sources that the, the oil and gas industry is actually working with the petitioners and adopting that speed limit in that zone to try to squelch uh, and appease some of that concern. So hopefully that gave me a little bit of positive feeling like if, if the oil and gas industry is willing to give give it up and and uh, kind of bend over to the will of the petitioners, then perhaps maybe they won't push it any further because they should. I mean, logic would dictate the recreational boating industry isn't isn't the one that they're concerned with. It's really the oil and gas industry and the big ships and the and the transit vessels. And uh, it's hard to get foreign flag vessels to uh, abide by our laws anyway. So really, the oil and gas industry is really the only people they would be able to get to uh, to enforce this rule upon. So if they're voluntarily willing to take the rule, that'll take a lot of uh, burden off our industry. So it'll be I interesting see. to see how that plays out. I still think they'll try to lump recreational with commercial. They always conflate the two. <laughs> oh, and I, I still think, and, and like we talked about before, I still think there are ways for the two <laughs> types of fishing industries to work together, even with our differences. You know, I've, I've been able to align with them on other issues, even though I mm-hmm. come from more of a recreational background, but I saw that in, in this moment that they were able to come together for this, but concerning whales, even the right whale, um, there's a lot of threats to it, of course, but I don't see them yet. And, and, but Congress has said like, Hey, we have the ability to help fund research, but they haven't seen cooperation from commerce yet (laughs) in terms of doing that. So I think they're also scapegoating the North Atlantic right whale too. Um, and, and, and it's in a really perilous situation. Absolutely. But they continue to blame much like they were with you guys blaming recreational and commercial. Um, even though, uh, it's the same risk entailed. The the Marine Mammal Protection Act, the ESA, nobody wants to strike a whale intentionally because <laughs> no. there are a lot of consequences that come with that. And and why would they want to do that? Um, the, the whale yeah. is, is significantly larger than most of these vessels, especially recreational. So the, the whale could cause untold damage and, and, and all that. So everyone knows what entails with, with clashes with whales. I don't see yet a seriousness with wanting to monitor whale health. And then they're endorsing projects that actually could worsen the whale's plight. Um, so it, to me, it's like they're wanting to scapegoat recreationists because they they have nothing else to say. Um, they just kind of invented out of a thin air. So you're right. We do have to monitor, um, especially on the Atlantic side and, and still keep a watch on what's happening in the Gulf of Mexico because they will, they'll find a way to scapegoat the recreational boaters and anglers. Um, and that's why I think the marine manufacturers and recreational interests came together um, and said, yes, we want to be partners in 
and we are partners in monitoring whales and we need to be, um, and excluding us by penalizing us doesn't help the whale nor us. So yeah. I like that they were forcing that. Um, and maybe the administration listened here for a time, um, even momentary, but you never know. They could still work with these petitioners um, to try to find a workaround. That's usually how these kind of preservationists work. But more relatedly, we're coming at the heels of the 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act being enacted. You had told mm-hmm. me that this administration is looking to do something, perhaps relist with more stringent protections, manatees, especially a Florida strain. And yeah. you had mentioned before we went on air that the population is actually booming. So a listing, booming. A, a more strenuous listing would actually inhibit recovery efforts and potential delisting efforts. And delisting, like my listeners know and you and your folks know, doesn't always mean that decimation of a species will happen. It just means maybe states will have management over this particular species that has been determined to be recovered. Um, so what is happening? What is going on? And and talk about the manatee numbers and what this proposal would potentially do. Well, I mean, the manatee issue in, in the state of Florida, I think it needs to be, I think, I, I don't want to come across as not supporting uh, the manatee population, because I think the manatee population in Florida is a great example of of a case study of a, a bigger societal problem that we have in a lot of these species, uh, whether it's the manatee or the black bear or charismatic megafauna in general. I mean, Florida spent $27 million last year buying lettuce to feed these animals because their population is at such a huge, massive point that there's so many species or so many animals there's not enough estuary and environment to support them, and there's not enough food in the environment. So they're literally dying at an increased rate. The mortality, they're experiencing an uh, unusual mortality event, much like the right whale is experiencing. And people are blaming the unusual mortality event on the fact that there's less seagrass in the region. And in my opinion, I think it has a lot to do with the water quality, and there's just so many more manatees than we've ever had before. I mean, manatees were listed uh, when there was a population was around a thousand manatees. It was like thirteen hundred. Now we're up over eighty five thousand or eighty five hundred manatees. So the population is literally eight times the size. It was delisted in twenty seventeen, and uh, the population is booming, booming to the point where there's not enough food in the environment, and we're spending almost thirty million dollars a year to feed these animals because. There's not enough population or not enough food in the environment to support the population size. So one could argue the population has reached carrying capacity and there's not enough estuary and environment to support the numbers of individuals already in the environment. Or the flip side of it is the environment isn't healthy enough to support the number of individuals that are in the environment. For example, the water quality issues that we see across the estuarian environments in the west coast and southwest coast of Florida through red tide events and other harmful algal blooms could potentially be impacting the seagrass population to the point where it's not allowing the manatees to proliferate and, and feed effectively. I mean, look at the IRL, the Indian River Lagoon system. It's hugely devastated with seagrass loss, and that's where they're spending a lot of money and a lot of time trying to feed these manatees because they don't have food to eat. So, there's definitely a bigger picture at play in the fact that either we need to have a conversation about carrying capacity or we need to have a real conversation about 
these seagrass losses that we're experiencing at historic levels on the east and west coast of Florida due to water quality events that are still really out of control. And it's uh, something that is uh, kind of a systemic issue that we need to kind of embrace. I think uh, a hard look at uh, a smart growth plan and and really reevaluating our living shorelines and, and investing in living shorelines. What's comical to me is if you want to buy waterfront property in Florida, you can go buy waterfront property in Florida if you got the money. And in order to build a dock on that waterfront property, property you got to go through some steps with DEP and you got to pay to have this study done. And if you can shade an area, they'll let you come in and they'll let you build a dock. They should not only let you build a dock, but then they should then in, encourage or incentivize homeowners to rebuild living shorelines. If you're going to harden a seawall by building a seawall and building a dock, they should allow you to put benthic and uh, surface structure there that's going to encourage growth and water filtration. I mean, there's oyster reefs that are floating, suspended, and then you could put benthic, meaning bottom-oriented oyster reefs there too. And the more oysters and growth and seagrass that you're promoting growing on that structure is going to filter more water, clean the environment, and help promote living shorelines. And no one uses the water underneath their dock. If you have a dock, you use the water on either side or in front or behind the dock for your boats and for your water recreation. Underneath your dock, no one goes there. So let's put some big oyster reefs under there. Let's encourage oyster growth, clam growth barnacle growth, seagrass growth, and let's encourage water filtration along our coastlines. I think that coupled with a smart growth plan, making sure that we don't have septic use up and down our coastlines or along our interior areas, I think is all really, really smart plans in the long-term health of Florida ecosystems and, and marine environments. I don't think you have an anti-manatee position. It sounds very much you care about wanting to accommodate a growing population of them. And this is what happens, as you very well know and our listeners know, when rulemaking happens. It doesn't account for the numbers. It doesn't account for the situation on the ground. And they just put a blanket statement regulation saying we're putting more protections. But those protections aren't really helping the manatee, in this case, to proliferate more. It seems like this will inhibit and disincentivize, let's say, Floridians from wanting to create habitat or being incentivized to create, let's say, more habitat for them or uh, feeding sources of that sort. To me, it doesn't seem like the the proposed rule that you're talking about would invite kind of the solutions you're advocating no, for. It, it it ultimately it would it would cut those solutions off because once you release manatees, then everything becomes more conflated. There's more bureaucracy. There's more red tape. And everything becomes more difficult to navigate. Whereas right now, I mean, it could be really, really easy. Look at, look at, for example, AstroTurf. In some municipalities, it's literally illegal for you to replace your grass with some really nice-looking artificial turf because it's against county code. And it's silly. I mean, I think we should be incentivizing coastal homeowners to replace their grass with this artificial turf. Some of this stuff looks better than normal grass. You don't have to water it. You don't have to fertilize it. Now you're cutting a huge amount of nutrients from the system, and you're not using as much water, which is relieving the pressure on our water quality or our water uh, table, which we have a huge problem with in the state of Florida. And you're just really improving the the overall health of the 
ecosystem. And instead of incentivizing that, we're actually penalizing people for trying to do this. And uh, to me, it's it's really, really simple. If you look at the math on some of that artificial turf, if you live in the home for five to seven years, it pays for itself to do that because you don't have to water it. You don't have to maintain it. And a lot of these coastal homes in areas that it is not against the law is already doing that for that reason. But if you made that some sort of incentive with like a tax break or something and made it cheaper for homeowners along the coastlines to do that. I mean, I, I travel the, the intercoastal waterway a lot and I'm constantly seeing grass clippings. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Being sprayed into the water, and that adds to detritus, that adds to nutrient loading in the systems. And you're constantly seeing people, they want green grass in their backyard. So they're going to they're gonna eventually pay someone to go out there and fertilize it or fertilize it themselves. And being right on the coastline, that fertilizer goes right in the water and fuels harmful algal blooms. So if there was ways that we can incentivize living shorelines and incentivize the use of artificial turf on, along our coastlines, we're cutting out a huge number of nutrients into our systems and, and really improving the overall health of Florida. And I think that's something that we just need to kind of change the thinking and change the culture on and, and slowly work towards that kind of solution. Because as we improve water quality, seagrass goes up and then the manatee population can support a larger number of individuals. I know Florida gladesmen like yourself and, and all of you in the conservation space, Travis, Mike, and others, talk about these issues really well. Have you guys had conversations with anyone on the federal side? Because it seems like there's sometimes a disconnect and even sometimes with your state as well, because these seem like workable solutions that everyone, even outside of Florida, would be totally on board with. But it doesn't seem like they're listening sessions to these recommendations. They just adopt these rules. Go, they go unchallenged and there's really no stakeholder input. But have you guys been forcing um, conversations with the federal rulemakers uh, who are deciding so, this rule? So don't don't put me in uh, the same class as Travis and Mike. Those guys are much more advanced and, and experienced than I am. I'm learning the ropes of this system myself. And I think guys like that set a great example of not only being gladesmen and conservationists, but they're also connected and they know how to uh, get their message heard at a higher level. Um, I'm not there yet. So I'm open to suggestions because I think there is a lot of good solutions at the ground level. And I think a lot of good ideas can come from fishermen, from outdoor enthusiasts like myself. But we just struggle. I mean, last night I was at a, a deep sea fishing club doing a, a fishing conversation. We're talking about fisheries science and management. And they had a lot of good ideas, but they were begging me, like, how do we get these ideas heard? And there's really not a good 
path forward to uh, to to talking about this and to getting those ideas heard. And one of the big problems that we have is like, for example, the fact that fishery science is lacking so behind management. And even if we had a billion dollars for fishery science tomorrow, we had the best, most informed management ever. We, the, the number of enforcement officers on the water is a joke. They do a great job. The ones we have and enforcement is awesome. It's just, there's a huge lack in number of enforcement officers and, the problem, everybody agrees this is a problem, but no one in the fisheries management space can go lobby Congress. And NOAA staff can't talk about appropriations. So you're stuck in this feedback loop of the council rec- recognizes the problem, but they can't do anything about it. NOAA knows there's a problem, but they can't do anything about it. The Southeast Fisheries Science Center knows there's a problem, but they can't do anything about it. So is law enforcement. So it's left up to fishermen who have no idea how to be involved in the process to go out there and lobby Congress for more funding for science and management and, uh, and, and ultimately enforcement. And none of us know how to do it really well. So I think that's another big problem that we need to work towards as well. I think that's a common problem anywhere across the country. I hear about this in the mid Atlantic for coordination out West. It's always a big hurdle. You hear this in the Pacific Northwest where they have a lot of challenges to wildlife management, um, I think yeah. it's more perilous than you guys because they actually have people as commissioners who don't like the hunting and fishing lifestyle and they're working against them um, in that grain. So you guys are a little better off, but yes, you do have to deal with a lot of different factors at play, but more um, related to our conversation, you were mentioning before we went online that there were some more issues pertaining to fisheries that you think my listeners should be aware of uh, concerning the grouper and other stuff. Cause I, I know, and I recall you look at like kind of trends of, of what happens with fisheries policy. Sometimes when there are a little more preservationist uh, environmentalists in charge in the white house and in different agencies, you see constraints placed on recreational fishing that their red snapper days have been shortened. Um, there's fewer opportunities to do recreational fishing, especially in your backyard um, so, so what are the other policy areas you'd like to discuss or updates that you want to update? Oh man. Well, I am severely frustrated today. Specifically, they just released the wave four data from MREP FES showing that we have literally more than doubled the year to date landings for red grouper in 19 days. So essentially what happened was uh, we were looking at uh, the landings from June or January 1st through the end of June. So the first six months of the year showed that we had landed about 62% of the quota for red grouper. So the season closed July 19th. So the first six months of the year, January 1st through June 30th, were already reported 62%. And we only had 19 more days left until the end of Ju- uh, July 19th. So we're all sitting here thinking, all right, when this data comes out, we're probably going to have some leftovers. We're probably going to be able to reopen the right grouper fishery and have some more days. We're all excited about that, looking forward to that. Well, they just released the data and showed that in 19 days, we more than doubled the year-to-date landings. And now they're showing we landed 130% of the quota and went 30% over. So this is the third year in a row the recreational sector has overfished red grouper. And with that comes the accountability measures from the MSA that doesn't allow us to increase the catch level for red grouper. And it's extremely frustrating because the fishermen are being punished for the federal lack of ability to manage a fishery. It's absolutely heinous 
that we are being punished for the inability of management to close the fishery. I mean, essentially, it's not our fault that we fish the season when the season is open. If the season is open, we're going to go fishing. If the season is closed, we're not going to go fishing. So, A, it's frustrating that we're being penalized for overfishing when it's really the, the fact that the season was left open and Noah's inability to project the season. And then, B, how in the world in 19 days did we land more than double of our year-to-date landings? I mean, the math isn't mathing. I'm not a, I'm not a mathematician, but, uh, I mean, that – does not add up and logic dictates that something's wrong and uh the fact that they're just sitting there saying yep yep we double check this we qa qc this data it's it's good to go is uh it's, it's laughable and it's frustrating and it's, it's ultimately a spit in the face to the recreational fishery in general and also the commercial fishermen because they're held to a higher standard and they're held within the quota and the recreational sector is overfished three years in a row now. And now everybody's being punished because this is a cyclical fishery and we're on a cyclical upswing. And we're seeing more and more fish at a larger average size. So the fishery is showing all the signs of becoming healthier. But they can't increase the catch levels because MSA dictates you have to end overfishing. And if they go and say, well, the fishery is healthy, that's why they're hitting the quota. So we need to increase the catch level to end overfishing. They can't do that. They'll get sued by environmental groups. So it's really frustrating. We're just caught in this feedback loop of never ending, hitting our head against the wall of, well, we know the fishery's healthy. We've got to increase the catch level, but we can't because NOAA is failing to do their job and failing to pro- properly project the season and failing to prevent the overfishing by the recreational sector. And on one side, you could say that. And the other side, you could say, in my opinion, my tinfoil hat's coming out a little bit when I look at these numbers because the numbers aren't adding up. Someone needs to answer the question on how in the world could we jump from 62% on June 30th to July 19th, 19 days later, jump to 130%. That does not make sense. That does not add up. So either Noah's failing to do their job or someone's failing to add up the numbers right. Yeah, they always put out sometimes questionable numbers. I think they often don't lean on science. They're they're just finding some numbers, say, oh my gosh, we saw this and this is worrisome. And therefore we have to change, you know, allotments and, and change the season. So it seems to me they're guided on reaction. And this is a common thread across other policies they've done. They did this for the vessel speed rule. They're doing it for other rules. Other agencies are doing this as well. They take little information or maybe an isolated case, maybe inflate the numbers or maybe have wrong math. Uh, kind of wrong input on in terms of the real math. Um, and then they take and run that statistic, which could be challenged and tested um, and say like, oh my God, this is this is what it is. So to me, it seems like they're bungling the numbers. It's not conspiratorial. Um, we see this happening in other agencies too, because they just need something to run with to say, these closures, closures are justified. This action is justified. So you're not <laughs> crazy to think um, that like it is uh, verifiable in, in some other actions. You can You can make a case for that. Um, Dylan, why don't we close out with talking about your business? How's business going? I know there's a lot of different factors at play. People are obviously pinching their budgets, um, being a little more careful. But are you guys staying busy with recreational fishing trips and offshore trips, even with all of this going on? Uh, yeah, I mean, we're doing all right from a, from a business aspect. We're blessed to be a, a longstanding family business that's been in operation now for nearly 100 years 
This year, we were voted the number one charter fishing company in the entire country by USA Today. So we're we're blessed to be in a position that we're in and blessed to have a really great team and a, and a really great group around us and, and a really great group of guests that continue to come back and patronize our family business. So uh, as a whole, in our company, we're doing well. As an industry, we're struggling. Uh, we're struggling bad. I mean, our industry is anywhere from 15 to 25% down on average. A lot of the small operators, the mom and pops, are going out of business. A lot of new businesses are being pushed out. Um, I mean, it's it's really sad what's happened this year to our industry with shortened seasons, restricted access, weather, and then just the the limiting of seasons and the early closures and the the failure to project proper season lengths, the early closure of gags, the early closure of red grouper, the shortened season for amberjack, the the everything. It's just really put a burden on our charter industry and and travel and tourism as a whole is seeing a huge impact from inflation and rising costs of goods sold. The only travel and tourism industry that's really succeeding right now is the cruise industry. The cruise industry is flourishing because they have their their all-inclusive option, right? So your small family of four can budget and know once they get on the cruise ship, they're not really going to spend a lot of money. Whereas if you come on a trip with your family to the beach right now in, in central West Florida and Madeira beach where we're located, the hotel costs more, the restaurant costs more, the taxi ride costs more, everything costs more. So it makes it really difficult for a small family to budget and the, the recreational piece of their vacation, the, the, the fishing trip, the dolphin tour, the, the shelling trip that they do with us at Hubbard's Marina has all been kind of cut back a little bit. So we're seeing a lot of families that would come and do a, a half-day trip and a dolphin tour and a sunset cruise and an island trip. They might come out and only do one trip with us or perhaps only spend one day out of the beach. Uh, so we've definitely seen a decline in tourism numbers and a, and, and a decline in overall headcount. Um, but we're just trying to uh, maximize what we can by diversifying and, and working together uh, as a region to try to bring as many people as we can to our beautiful slice of paradise. But uh, definitely the travel and tourism industry is suffering. I've seen that here in Virginia too, even post COVID, especially with inflation, rising gas prices, because boats rely on fuel, obviously to chart and to operate. And yeah, with fuel mm -hmm. prices going up and, and people pinching their pennies and being really judicious about what they spend. Of course, it's a very big concern for operators large and small like yourself so it's not isolated unfortunately we're seeing this all across the country but i know the industry is very resilient we've seen you guys come out of economic upturns and downturns before and by having guests like you in the show we're trying to showcase the importance of maintaining these family owned and operated business because you guys contribute a lot to the fabric of the country you pay dues to conservation with all the monies generated through purchases and licenses and so we will continue to drum that here on the show and we are very always excited to have you back, guests like you back on the program, Dylan. So anytime you want to come back on, share an update, we welcome it. And uh, tell everyone where they can follow you and connect with your business. Well, you can check us out, hubbardsmarina.com. Look us up, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, all that good stuff. Just look up Hubbard's Marina and uh, catch us Sunday night. We do a show every Sunday night at 7.30 p.m. to talk about fishing and what's going on in the fishery. And uh, hopefully we'll see you out in the water and come find out why we're the number one fishing charter in the entire country. And don't Ooh. forget, if you're too busy to go fishing, you're just too darn busy. <laughs>
I would love to fish with you guys. We talked about this before. I hope I can come down to the region. We can hit the water uh, maybe sometime in the in the next year or two uh, with my schedule being so busy with my new job. Uh, but Dylan, thank you again for coming on the program. This is very informative. I know my listeners, even those outside of the Gulf of Mexico region, will be really attuned to this and follow this policy more, maybe tell their friends in Florida to care about these issues um, and, and really kind of share the the message. So we appreciate you coming back on. Thank you so much. Anytime. Thank you. You have a great day. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. If you enjoyed what you heard today, go leave us some reviews on Apple and Spotify or wherever podcasts are played. Your feedback will help us reach more people. And I love to know what is on your mind after each episode. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat or a guest announcement because that is our way of updating all of you listeners. And we have just hit a thousand followers on Instagram for the podcast account. Thank you very much. And if you have any guest suggestions or topics you want to hear on the show, I'm all ears. I would love to hear your feedback there. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.